observer has an effect on the experiment. And if the observer has an effect on the experiment, there must be some relationship between the act of perceiving something and the nature of that thing itself for what it is. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are going to be chatting with the fabulous Adam Apollo a little bit later. Been sitting on this one a little while, actually, since like December 8th or something. So sorry, Adam, but... We're getting it out there now. It is a fantastic chat. It's right before Christmas. Kind of got up to speed with what <clears throat> he's been up to and his web sovereignty stuff and all that good stuff. Fantastic chat. We've got everybody's favorite podcaster, Graham. Hope we don't get COVID Dunlop. <laughs> we'll yeah, probably man. get it eventually. Yeah, well, I think we've had, I, I might have had it. I think I'm probably <coughs> Did immunity now. I think I had it in November. Remember we had the, the stuff in November? Remember your buddy was saying we was walking pneumonia? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we don't want to talk too much about that, but how you doing? I'm good. Good? I fixed yeah, the this, studio. This is a fantastic chat with Adam. It really was was great. Was it long? I can't remember. Uh, it was fairly long, yeah. Yeah. Huh. I mean, we get into the whole blockchain style social media in a way. Communication platform. You know, it, it really was enlightening that they're trying to make it, like, match the decentralization of the universe. You know, how it's in an interconnected web. You know, the, the, the more thing, I, so. I think about it, I just, I don't see the, the point. Of what? Mass-connected social media. If it's decentralized? I guess. I mean, the, the ability to share the news instantly is kind of groundbreaking, but it's not like... No, it's but it's like more about like people, coming from it. people can connect with like interests and stuff like that. I mean, it connects people all over the world, right? I mean, look at, look at how the many more people have at, found communities and people they can oh, talk yeah, to now. Oh yeah, totally. But the more I look at like the Mastodon instances seems like such a better setup for it. Well, that, this will be that way better than that. Like this will be like that on steroids kind of, you know. You think? Yeah. Nodes you know? everywhere, decentralized virtual reality, a part of it. Like you can go in virtual and out of VR. Reality. Oh yeah, AR, VR. Oh, this is not happening oh, yeah. in our lifetime. Oh yeah, no, oh, yeah, it's happening, no, dude. No. Dude, it's happening. Is it? It's yeah. all happening. Yeah, it's all happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When do you think I could throw in the Oculus and go see Adam Apollo? Yeah, and or, or, so, or you can so be in like your this, virtual network I in VR, right? I just walk into right? Congress, and there's, like, Michael yelling at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Up on his, up on picture Michael, Instead like, of typing, he's, he's got just a, like, he's got, a, he's got a toga on to <laughs> yeah, hold the yeah, book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. See, you're already putting it in, see, your, or your imagination is already making it happen. But I'm not into it. I'd rather, yeah, I guess that'd be all right, but I don't want to be walking around with this headset on. It'll be, you know, it'll be more subtle. It'll be part of your glasses that you're wearing right now. You know, I don't need to see Ryan from Kansas. I know what he looks like. I'm not, it'll I'm just saying it's going to be fully, it'll I'd be, love to see Ryan from that, Kansas, right? but I don't need that. to, I don't need to enhance the virtual experience any further, I don't think. I know, either, I don't really want to either, but. Because people aren't going to do it. It's I not mean, about as the it is, people won't part. even phone people. It's not about people the People won't even part. phone people. It's just about the connection through an uncensored, no. No, it's in the wrong decentralized, direction. you know. People won't even phone people anymore. I'd rather just text them. Yeah. Your phone FaceTime, people fucking panic. Holy fuck. This oh, motherfucker yeah. wants to look at me. Yeah. That's weird, eh? Such I don't give weird. a fuck. 
So we should talk about speaking of decentralized. I'm not a big FaceTimer kind of though. I'd just, you know, I FaceTime with the kids if I'm away or something like that. But other than that, I just, we do so much zooming for the podcast that it's just like, it's the last thing I want to do when I'm at home, when I'm not, you know, meetings drive me crazy. The zoom meetings. I just want to beat my head on the wall. It doesn't even matter if it's contact at the cabin or like our construction zoom meetings. I just, it's so hard for me to pay attention. Yeah. It's hard for me to pay attention during the podcast, you know. Yeah, well, even right now, I mean, right in the intro. I got the thing I was going to get back into uh, taking some notes Nice, sometimes. good, yeah, that'll keep you going. So, so we should talk about it. About what? Well, we have a new feed. Oh, Grand it? America That's Outlawed. it? Grand America Outlawed is our new feed. It's uh, already got a YouTube strike. Yeah, we already, we're <laughs> already in one. trouble. We're already in trouble with it. Outlawed is already <laughs> in trouble. Episode two got taken down. <laughs> but, but that's okay. That's okay. Because we're going to just do it again and we're do it again. Do it we're again. trying to insulate this feed that we've been building for eight years a little bit. And that way we can do rants. Like these intros won't be, you know, so much about COVID and all because we'll be ranting about that on the other show. So I just keep bit. making yeah. YouTube channels and I'll just be like, America Outlawed, take two. No, no, we're going to call <laughs> it. Three. We'll find different names. Yeah, I think. Well, it can't be like too far away from Grand America Outlawed. I had a lot of different names on that list. Christmas yeah, but we Eve, have branding. Like you can't 20. just yeah. You can't They're just start. America dark or yeah, after you can't just midnight. rifle through all those. When the feed, we, we picked the feed down. We've picked Rogue it. Works. No, we've picked. We've picked. <laughs> we've picked. <laughs> we're, we're not just interchanging them. <laughs> so well, yeah, we, we can't got change one. the whole. We can't change the whole brand of it. Then I mean, when you told me about this plan. Or when well, we, yeah, we, we are changing on the that, plan, but, but now that it's that outlawed, it's just away, outlawed. No, if we, if it goes down, we start but the up a RSS new one. feed and everything's still there. We're not changing the show because of YouTube. Well, no, it might be. It's, I was thinking more than YouTube. Oh, like, if it could we get, get worse to, oh yeah, that, well yeah, then we'll get, come like, up with yeah, a different yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah we might get to grab America. Yeah, I let the URLs lapse, so that's okay. You know, I figured no one's taking them. I know that's fine. We don't need to pay that. I'm in a negotiation. We, don't, we, don't, we gotta we gotta cut back on our expenses here. I'm in the middle of a negotiation though for CalgaryCannabisConsulting.com. Oh, good. For I you. knew that'd be a good investment. Good for you. Yeah. Oh, like you bought? I bought it. A, <laughs> I bought it. I bought it the day they legalized cannabis. Good for you. Yeah. And now I bought it. I probably we've probably paid what's ours. We've probably paid like $80 over the years Canadian. Yeah. And now my last offer was 500 US. All right. That's so we'll see. Good. Yeah, that's good. It'd be great. I'll be super that's proud of myself. Money, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine in the early days when you were getting like sex.com. Yeah, exactly. What is sex.com? I don't know. Go there now. So. So yeah, go to Grand America Outlawed. It's on all the podcasts. GrandAmericaOutlawed.ca and YouTube and all that. And bear with us; the website is pretty terrible. Um, but it's going to get there. The reason, you know, I'm not great at doing the websites, and I got so much going on. I just sort of whipped up something there that the episodes could fire to, so people could get to it on the internet. A place to go and find the support link. Um, and then we've got actually our buddy Mark is redoing the website right now and cleaning that up. So once he's done that, we're going to make an exact clone of it. And then we'll have both sites sort of up and running 
nice side by side. They'll be clones of each other and they'll just be sort of different content. And, you know, obviously the reason for that is because we've, we've, we're starting to have problems. I mean, the purge is coming clearly they've had enough of some things and, Luckily, we've been listening to No Agenda and, you know, huge, huge pat on the back to those guys because, honestly, I'd be panicking right now, I think, a little bit if it were for the fact that we just had stuff in place to just sort of like, you know, when shit started getting crazy, I'm able to just, we're already, we're not worried about the websites, right? So we can always, people always have a place to go to find our new feed or find our new information because we don't have to worry about that because it's on our own server. Yeah. And, um, sorry, I'm a little distracted on. And then now I've, oh, oh, of course. How is it? It's it's, somebody's got it. It's it's, it's got got a lot of, it's got a lot of, (laughs) 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 it looks pretty, it's pretty full of stuff. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have went there. (laughs) We've lost ground, but it doesn't link to porn or anything like that. Like you would have thought that, you know, porn would have got a hold of it, but no. Hmm. So sorry, sorry to distract you there. Anyways. That's okay. But yeah, I agree. I agree. No agenda's got it right, right? Because they they just do it all on themselves, right? They don't even use this, the uh, the the service that we use that distributes our podcast, right? They just do it themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. So do they go all to the players themselves? I've already, yeah, I've already uploaded it all all the audio to the server now. Yeah. I'm just. Fucking around trying to get the RSS feed working, which I've figured out how to do now. It's going to be a bit time consuming because I have to do it episode by episode. Mm-hmm. I don't see another way to do it unless if there is some way that I could just like, no, nah, I don't see how to do it. I don't see an automatic way to but do it. That's Maybe not, but that's not, we don't have to do that yet, though, do we? Or? Well, that's, I just want to start running it now just yeah. so it's there to oh, test I and see. Okay. fail yeah, safe. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, then. That's a good idea. What I'll do is as soon as it's running smooth, I'll throw it in iTunes and stuff, and it'll just be there, and it'll right. slowly take over the other one. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Instead of a stop-start. Oh, um, that's a good They'll idea. just coexist yeah. for a long time, okay, and yeah. hopefully we never get kicked off of our host. But yeah. if we do, yeah. you know, uh, by then 50% or so of our traffic's already in the other one, then people will figure it out pretty quick. Yeah. So we're going to hit some of our harder topics there. We want to fight back. We're going to go hard more. there. Yeah. 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 And we won't do intros there. It'll be more just straight content. We're not sure where we're going to stream. If it's going to be YouTube or some other platform, we're trying to figure that out. Yeah. We're in some weird times. We're trying to figure that out because YouTube clearly isn't going to work. Yeah. We're only there. We're not there for building an audience. We're not there for subscribers. We're just there for the streaming aspect of the video. Yeah, it's good. So the audio will be on the server. That's big news. We finally got to there. And now we'll have, well, we've had the chat server and test. We've started doing some more, much harder beta testing on the Mattermost chat server. We're having trouble with the Android side of it, but the iPhone side of it is working fine. It's almost identical to Discord. Like very, very, very similar to Discord. I guess the difference would be you don't have the ability to just jump back and forth between the different servers like you do on Discord. But you might in a I could see how I, I could see how it could be done so that could come down the road because that's kind of what you can already do with Mastodon. So I've, we've got our Mastodon set up now as well, which is kind of because some people find the chats move kind of fast. 
the chats are pretty fast moving. It's sort of just a nonstop conversation. I mean, some days there's thousands of messages just flying through the place. And Discord is more like you make a profile, you have a bio, you have a picture. People can go to your, or not, uh, sorry. um, Mastodon. Mastodon, our Mastodon instant, which is Mastodon with an O, M-A-S-T-O-D-O-N. Mastodon. Yeah, but you can also just go grammarica.ca slash social, and that'll take you there. Okay. So anyway. I guess we need a new link for the show notes from that. I don't think yeah. we have that So yet. you go there now, and like if you're thing, I think I've seen you join today. Genome, is that you, or is that someone pretending to be you? Oh, my God. Someone I stole Genome? Did they? They're no. going to sell it to you. Or did you get in? No, I never got the email. Oh. I mean, this is the problem. This is the same oh. problem I remember having when I got into the No Agenda one. Give me your phone, Jiren, and ro- roops yeah, we'll, during we'll, the show yeah, later, we'll, and I'll get yeah. it going. Well, but I'd like to learn how. you got to show me how, because maybe yeah, I yeah. want to get the family on there and stuff. So day. anyway, it's there. You'd have a profile. You can have a description. Now, there's a different couple different timelines there. One timeline is just people that you follow. Another timeline can be everyone on the Grimerica server, and then another timeline can be people from multiple different servers. I guess there's hundreds or thousands of servers. No agenda has one, obviously. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. So now I can go on there and I just, you know, blink on the side and boom, I'm in Grimerica and then click over to the side and bang, I'm in the no agenda one. This is way more popping because they got like thousands of people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so you can kind of cross platform like that. And I can see how the chats will have that ability eventually too. Um, the difference you mean the is, chats on the server, not the Discord. Is that what you're not saying? Not the Discord. Yeah. No, the, like, well, Tripoli's Discord got nuked. Yeah. And then I said two other Discords he was in got nuked. So it's coming. I mean, I feel like our Discord days are numbered. Better to be as prepared as possible. Oh, it's just a weird time, man. That's so it'll be crazy. there. So then, anyway, the Mastodon is more like you go to Graham, there's his profile picture, his bio, and there's everything he tweeted and all his stuff. So it's more like, uh, almost more like an Instagram, say, except. Yeah. Yeah. More t- no, just remember, because yeah, you're not on Twitter yeah. much. It's more like yeah. Twitter. It's yeah. very, very similar to Twitter, but uh, it doesn't have like the character count limit and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So we'll have that, and that kind of intertwines, which I think is sort of the good future of social media. That's all on our servers, so no agenda could block us, and other instances can block us, but we can't get shut off. So the Grimerica community will always have access there. So they can block our whole community? Whoever's adminning theirs can block our whole instance? Yeah. Wow. I think, remember, that's what had the no agenda guys were going through in the beginning. Other instances were blocking them all. They got canceled by the wokeness right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, But it doesn't affect your community. I mean, do you really want those people in there anyway? I mean, who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. That's the the brilliance of it. Which is, you know, I'd rather just have the Grimerica community and be able to wander out of that as I please, as opposed to be able to have, you know, just get fucking bombarded. We should get the union to get get one on there, too. Union of the Unwanted. Yeah, well, the problem is it's server space, right? It all costs oh, money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is yeah. this is all leading into my you're begging for my money, begging right? for money spiel because we still do all this for free, value for value, and we're trying. You know, we've gotten to the point where we're at almost 500 episodes, and we've built this amazing community of amazing people, and and, and they're getting new, yeah, unintentionally, and they're getting nuked all over the fucking place, and almost worse than losing the content would be to just have the Discord disappear and the Twitter disappear and the Instagram and 
Right. All that yeah, stuff yeah, disappears. A, yeah. So not only do we have not able to talk to Ryan and all these oh, people and an anymore. email subscription too. I mean, that could go too. They're not able to talk to each other either. Maybe most importantly, all those people now lose contact with each other. So now you have, you know, there's probably only a few hundred people in the chats that, you know, there's a, Reg on regular, yeah. on a regular basis that come in on a monthly basis or whatever. But you know, that's just gone. Those people have no way of maybe you can try and find each other through other servers and stuff like that. But... You know, the community could lose the ability to communicate real quick. So if it goes down, meet in cruising with steak. That's our yeah. meeting place. Well, we have if a rendezvous yeah, server. Yeah. Okay. We have a yeah, backup yeah. server. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, we're just migrating. This is the year. Within the next few months, we'll have migrated everything onto our own chat server and, and get into the Grand America Socials. GrandAmerica.ca.socials. Socials. Because it only works if there's a bunch of people in there. Yeah. And that's the problem is it all costs money. So now every tweet, every picture, every GIF... That's not going to Twitter, which means your dad is not going to Twitter either. Your dad is coming to us, and we don't give a fuck. Our plan with the data, to be honest, I haven't decided yet. We either have the option of every six months dumping into some cheap cloud storage, which <sighs> could get deleted then because you're using yeah. someone like that instead of our server. We'll but honestly, I just think probably. after six months, I'll probably just delete it. We'll probably see how it goes. Every six, every if it, as stuff gets six months old, it disappears. We'll probably, yeah. We don't need anything older than that. And that'll probably still between the chats and the thing be running at like a, you know, a terabyte every six months. Yeah. And that's so, it. yeah, I mean, we don't have ads. We don't want sponsors or anything like that. So we will. No, but we're at the point now where we'll be paying hundreds of dollars a month for hosting. And, uh, you know, we didn't anticipate that. And now we're running dual at the same time because we're getting the one up and running and the bandwidth needs to work and all that needs to work. And, it's great. It's exciting. It's fun times. Costs money. No one gives us any. Not no one gives us money. You guys give us money. We could use a few more. You just give us some money if you can, when you can. GrandAmerica.ca slash support. You can do a one-time donation. Or you can sign up for a monthly. There's Stripe. The Stripe I've seen people are fixing their Stripes. That's great. Or at least a half a dozen people have oh, got good. their Stripe repaired, which oh, is good. fantastic news. Because we had a big problem with that Stripe going down, right? Yeah, so it looks like that's on the way up. But yeah, grandamerica.ca slash support. If you can, guys, sign up for a monthly. That's great. We can budget on if you can make a one-time donation. I mean, right now we're sort of dumping it all back into making sure we're still here in six months. I yeah. mean, it could really thin the herd. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. Whoever's not prepared, yeah. Whoever's oh, I mean, not prepared. All it takes is iTunes and Lips. I mean, podcasting is one of the last bastions of freedom. It really is. It really seems to be. The audio podcasting part, you know? I mean, yeah. So many people are focused on because video all, content yeah. and all that, but it's this audio that really is still pretty good right now. Because ultimately, we could get the boot from Spotify and, Lib and yeah. iTunes and Libsyn and... Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, we're not ready to get kicked off any of those places no. yet, especially not Libsyn. I need yeah. another, like, couple of months to work yeah. that out. It's yeah. going to be a bitch. Yeah. But uh, once that's done, you know, by the summer, you know you know what I'll shoot for? Our anniversary. Okay. Our, by well, our eight-year anniversary, we should be able to be... Well, I mean, we'll still be running the Discord and stuff, but at least everything's there and up and running. Yeah. And it's we can start populating it and start switching the links around and that sort of stuff. That'll be exciting. And I then we'll a, be like nuke proof. I got a long email here from a listener about uh, do you want it, do you want should I go into it now? It's about about censorship and Google searching and all that, or should we put that on the other feed? 
Um, Maybe we could. Talk, I could read it now. It's kind of appropriate in a way. Sure. Kind of long though, but that's okay. How long's kind of long? Well, we still have like nineteen minutes. You have the Zoom, right? Uh, no, I don't have the Zoom yet. Sorry, we're just talking about a next show we're going on. Are we doing the whole three hours? Holy I think so. All right, here we go. We'll do the. I bought you some time. So this might get a little, I mean, I read this a while ago and then, uh, so it might get a little, it might get a little crazy, but I was going to read a synchronicity one, but I think this is more appropriate, appropriate. Hey, Darren and Graham, love the show guys. Couple things I thought you might be interested in. Number one, Google censorship. So this is now just for some context, this is, uh, from January 3rd. So this is before. Before what? The storming of the Capitol and all this mass oh, yeah. censorship after that. We got our first strike on the Grand America Channel on December 28th. Okay. Oh, I thought and it was And then like we got 18th. our second strike oh. on Grand America outlawed like a couple days ago. Yeah. So Google censorship. I'm a Brit who has been living in Thailand for the past 20 you years. Just for context, both COVID. Right. One basically said, shut the fuck up about lockdowns and masks. And the other one said, shut the fuck up about COVID vaccines. Yeah, exactly. That's the big, this is the big play. I mean, and I heard a clip. So about 20 years ago and a few weeks ago, I heard a clip on no agenda where there was a crowd gathered somewhere in the UK chanting, you can stick your poison vaccine up your arse, which brought a smile to my face and made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Finally, I thought the bulldog spirit of the good folks of Britain is finally revealing itself. So I got curious as to how much pushback against this bullshit virus and the vaccine was going on in the UK. And I did a Google search for UK lockdown protests. At first, everything seemed normal. My search returned 22,100,000 results, which is the kind of number I would expect. As I scrolled through the results looking for something interesting, I noticed that virtually all the results I was seeing was from mainstream media outlets such as BBC, The Guardian, MSNBC, etc., being the untrusting type, I ignored all those and clicked straight to page 10 and the results pages, hoping to find the real juicy stuff. Imagine my surprise when on page 10, I found that not only were the results now showing things completely unrelated to UK lockdown protests, mostly Google books, results about the ancient Greek and Russian conflicts, but also those 20,100,000 results had miraculously changed to a mere 95 and at the bottom of the page, 10, it said, in order to show you the most relevant results, we have omitted some entries very similar to the 100 already displayed. What the WTF? So it would seem that Google's deceptive strategy is to return its usual millions of results on the landing page. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing to see here, folks. But when you dig a little deeper, you find they've buried all the results that follow the MSN, but the results that follow the MSN narrative. Fucking despicable, if you ask me, although not surprising. Maybe this is common knowledge, but I found it interesting and thought you guys might too. I've attached screenshots. Now, I, I think that it used to work that if you go deeper into the search, you get the real stuff, the juicy stuff, because, yeah, it's all just mainstream stuff. No matter what the what the search is, it's just showing you all that now automatically. So they've capped it now? But, now they're, but now, they're, now they're just getting rid of it altogether. I'm going to switch to the center. Me too? I was doing that tonight. I was going to do that tonight. 
I just heard about that Gab and Dissenter, the way that Gab's starting to trying to create their whole. The problem is they got so demonized when they when they started a few years ago. Oh, it's a Nazi place, da 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 da. That it really kind of lost. I think it kind of lost traction when all these other places came up. And now that now it, but it's probably did lose some traction. But it probably helped in a way because all these other ones that came up after are getting knocked down, and they're they've they've made sure that they're well. They uh, got. I insulated don't know. against that. Sure, there's somewhat, and insulated. they're talking about their own phone, I mean, their own operating system, their own searching engine. Like that's, that's what's that's interesting the way that, about it I, is, is yeah. that that they're they just keep going. They just keep going. So this I mean, is what's going to happen. There's going to be a whole other system, an underground system. I don't people spend any gonna, time on people Gab. People are going to put up I'm, with this. I don't know what's on Gab. I'm not commenting on any Gab no. comment because I have no idea. So don't hold me accountable no, for me that. Neither, but. But I keep hearing good things about this dissenter browser and how it's blocking any sort of tracking. Even if you go on Facebook and stuff with it, it's blocking all their trackers. It's automatically blocking all the advertisements and stuff like that. Sounds like a step in the right direction. Yeah. Probably nothing works with it. That's the problem. It's like none of the other, like, there's no way you could use Zoom with it or something like that. I'm sure that's all blocked on that kind of stuff. But who knows? I'm going to start playing around with it. Yeah, good. Awesome. So number two, that insidious little lizard person, cunt Fauci, excuse my language, just before Christmas, again on the No Agenda show, but also on the Quite Frankly podcast, I heard a clip of Fauci, apparently on Sesame Street, telling everyone that he made a little trip to the North Pole and given Santa his vaccine. Whilst I agree with the outrage at Fauci normalizing the vaccine and making it sound safe to all the kids out there, what I have not heard mentioned is what I consider to be the most insidious part of the message he was sending, which is this. There must be millions of North Americans struggling financially with job losses and business closures in the run-up to Christmas. And no doubt with cash being short this year, many parents of kids who believe in Santa were, justifiably in my opinion, planning on using the excuse that Santa couldn't show up to deliver all his presents this year because of COVID. Well, guess what? That bastard Fauci just slammed the door on that excuse to the parents of all the kids that watched this. On top of that, Sony releases their U.S. $500 toy, the PS5, and we're told that demand far outstripped what Sony had projected and that people were queuing up in droves to buy what few units were available. Does this sound likely to you guys? Or is it more likely that this was a ruse to give people the impression that there is no financial hardship being suffered by vast numbers of people since more people than expected could afford to buy a PS5? I don't know. Maybe I'm too conspiratorial. What do you guys think? I don't know. <laughs> it's probably a different world in the States. Yeah. And he's in the UK living or UK uh, living in Thailand. Finally, and I'm sorry this is so long, I was told by a friend from the UK that it was revealed that people were being paid salaries of Great British Pounds, 28000 to act as pro-mask, pro-vaccine, pro-lockdown protesters. It wouldn't surprise me if those videos that were seen in the US, US people screaming at those who weren't wearing masks or practicing social distancing involved actors too. It wouldn't take much to convince people that they risk getting screamed at or attacked by Antifa if they go out with a mask or go to a restaurant or show any sign of dissent. All you need is a half a dozen videos to be screened by on all the MSM news outlets and bingo. In my opinion, I believe that the vast majority of people in the U.S. are not necessarily pro-Trump, but are definitely not pro-Democrat. And I believe that Trump probably won the election in a landslide. 
The best way to control a majority is to make the majority think they are the minority. And that's pretty easy to do when you control the MSM news and media. On a final thought and a topic for debate, actually, I want to address that other thing. I did see evidence that they were paying social media influencers to do that. So he's saying they, they paid protesters. I don't know if, I guess, I mean, if you're going to pay influencers on the, online, you might as well pay influencers on the ground. How can no pay us? I could have got dude, behind some masks. Anti, dude. You can't. You can't go out there without a mask yelling at people to wear masks. <laughs> Why well, would I might No, I got a price. You got a price? A yeah. mask price. That's, that's, <laughs> they, they won't pay that. They're going to spread it out everywhere. They can't pay you all the money. Anyways, one final thought and a topic for debate. Do you believe that all those folks like Fauci are genuinely evil and know exactly what they're doing while it's fucking up the lives of millions of people? Or do you believe that the cabal have not everything so compartmentalized that these people actually believe the bullshit they are pushing? Or do you think that these people have been so MK ultraed monarch mind controlled that they don't, that they know not what they have done? I'm inclined to go with option three, either that or they're all lizard people. <laughs> keep on doing what you do fellas and keep fighting the good fight. More and more people are seeing through all this bullshit and soon we will reach Mac Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. Much love JB. I agree. It's not even that complicated. You just got to think about it like this. Just like how, you know, nobody around here gives a fuck about people getting shot the fuck up in Palestine or Yemen. You know, they pretend they do and they stay up on social media. And some people probably really do and are making an effort to do it. But, you know, 99.99999% people don't give a fuck. Yeah. And they might come across a Facebook post or see something on YouTube or someplace and they're like, oh shit, that's terrible. And they forget two seconds later, that shit's happening now. That shit's happening now and it's getting worse in Yemen. It just got fucking way worse in Yemen. It's about to get way worse because they just made more people terrorists there. So that's just how the these people think about you. Yeah, I. that's the big question. It's just a complete indifference. That's the big question. Well, that's the big question though. I... I I struggle with that exact question. You know, where's their intention? Are they evil or do they just think they're doing good? I mean, sometimes they think they're doing it for the greater good, you know? Nah. No. 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 MK, yeah. Mm. I mean, it sucks even more. I mean, just think like the Africans and the Indians and, and like, because ultimately I think, and that's where fucking these evil bastards' plans really lie. When it comes to like, right? See, now that's super the thing. evil plans. Now that's, you know what I mean? No, that's like, a really good point. So I was just talking to somebody earlier. I think it was my mom or whatever. But when you go back to the forties or the early nineteen hundreds with World War Two, World War Three, that's not even counting all the other wars in between that we've been, the Western world's been involved in. The French Revolution. I mean, it goes on and on and on all the way back through history. Then you talk about the the unofficial kind of hidden stuff like you're about to talk about. And th this is the thing. It's been going on. This is a cycle. And it's now it's just technocratic. Now technology's involved. The, the people that want to control the world now have technology and mass, mass media manipulation like never before. And yeah. funding. I mean, I was going to, I pulled a, I pulled a chapter out of, out of the, uh, the controlled demolition of the American empire that I was going to, that I was going to read something for you. You're going to read the whole it, chapter? No, no, sorry. But I just, it was kind of a paragraph and it kind of fits into what we're talking about here. You don't have to, you don't have to apologize. I don't, actually, you can apologize. I don't mind. Oh, this is going to freak me out. 
This is from Controlled Demolition of the American Empire. And we gotta keep we gotta keep positive here too. I mean, there's a when that when that tipping point hits and a bunch of people wake up, look at you know there's gonna be an opportunity here to make a great society. I think something's gonna something good's gonna happen. They can't get they can't get away with this anymore. All these ones we're talking about hundreds of years ago, there wasn't as many people awake. But a hundred years ago, there were only twenty one NGOs. Hey, before you get too into that though, I felt like you just kind of. Not steamrolled me, but we moved on too quickly yes. from me saying yes. Africans and Indians. And yes, I don't want anyone thinking that I think anything should happen to those people. Yes. But I don't think when, when, it, when it comes down to the brass tacks, I don't think Bill Gates and these evil bastards, ultimately, if they're trying to kill a bunch of people or sterilize a bunch of people, I don't think it's canadians and americans per se right 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 it's much more likely going to be a bunch of people in third world countries and they're probably going to be brown or black like they did with the indians in canada even like they did with the indians in canada That's like he's been doing that, right? with the indias yeah. and the indians and the and not them specifically India already yeah like the chinese are doing yeah. with the fucking muslims the, and the that's Uyghurs, that's yeah. what i'm talking about yeah. so yeah yeah that's good yeah i did kind of steamroll you there so speaking of a hundred years ago, there were only twenty-one NGOs. Now they're over. How many do you think there are now? One hundred two thousand. Ten million <laughs> operating around the world, with one point five million NGOs operating inside the United States. Many, many times these are tax shelters dressed up to look like a charity in order to disguise the true intentions of the organization. NGOs get political cover as well as the goodwill that comes with looking like a charity organization. And since people do not like accusing charities of being shady without rock solid evidence, these organizations usually skate through without much scrutiny by the corporate media. Not that they in the media are in the business of actually digging deep into organizations being run by their own corporate overlords. So at first glance, a crooked NGO will look like an organization devoted to the benefit of humanity. But once the layers are peeled away and the true mission of the organization is discovered, this is a favorite method of the New World Order because they have discovered that these NGOs, they can use them to infiltrate a country, manipulate opinions, and change the laws to benefit their goals without starting a hot revolution. This is a list of the number of NGOs controlled by recognizable political, political operatives. George Schultz, 76. David and J. Rockefeller, 73. Brzezinski, 62. Thomas Pickering, 57. George H.W., 54. Madeleine Albright, 54. Rothschilds, 54. They're probably all in the same 54. George Soros, 49. Bill and Hillary, 35. Colin Powell, 35. Wolfowitz, 35. James Baker, 35. Rumsfeld, 34. John McCain, 33. Condoleezza, 32. Dick Cheney, 30. Dick Cheney. I mean, that's just, you know, that's insanity, right? All right, we got to get out of here. Yeah, we got to go. So anyways, that's a lot of influence. And you notice they're all, what's the, what's the common, common denominator with all them? I don't know. Three-letter word? Yeah. War? ABC? W-A-R. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. All right, guys. We love you. Let's just sign up for the newsletter, gramerica.ca slash news. Enjoy the chat with the wonderful Adam Apollo.
All right, we've got Adam Apollo back in Grimerica. He's uh, on the faculty of the Resonance Foundation, but he's also, I don't know, many other things, a wizard, a designer, a writer, a tech guru. I mean, I could go on and on, but let's uh, let's wait. Let's let Adam just describe himself a little bit. Welcome back, buddy. Mm, thanks so much for having me, guys. It's great to see you again and good to be on the show here in the tail end of this wild year we've been riding through. That's right. Yes. Tail end. I can't believe it's been, I heard somebody describe it. Like it's been, uh, two weeks is, uh, two, it feels like two weeks and 10 or feels like two weeks and two years all at once or something, you know, it's been really quick and also very slow. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, but you know, I think that, uh, the beauty is that even though it's been like riding a wild horse or something, it's given a lot of people a lot of time for reflection and a lot of time to dive deeper into what's really important to them. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel and it's, it's a, it's a key that we can come back to even with, uh, the sense that uh, there's been a lot, a lot of funk in there and a lot of division and a lot of, uh, you know, people who love each other a lot coming into separation in different ways. Um, and, and I think that it's really an important time for everyone to come back to what really matters and what we care about and who we care about um, and really restore that acceptance that we all need to have in order to go forward as a planet together. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember thinking that in March, April, I thought this could have some some good side effects. You know, people could realize how important family is and how important the home is and all these things. But it's, it's easy for me to slip right out of that, like eight, nine months later. So, but could you just talk yeah. a, just a brief, like overview, like the elevator pitch of yourself, kind of, of, of a little bit about yourself, just to familiarize people with, with you and your work since it's been I don't know, yeah. probably a year and a half since we talked or two years, maybe, or something. I think it's been about a year and yeah. a half. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great to see you guys again. I, I've had a a wild ride this life. Um, always been a scientist, always questioned things like crazy, uh, used to drive my teachers crazy in school. When I was about 15, I had a fantastic experience realizing and, and waking up to the reality that my body has a vibratory field around it. (laughs) And I started playing with it and exploring the sort of uh, way of the Jedi, as you could call it, doing blindfolded martial arts and exploration of extrasensory perception, those kinds of things. Um, and that drove me into physics because I wanted to understand, you know, why I wasn't learning about this stuff in school, why I, I never heard about chi or ki or energy, you know, why is this missing from history, from school, from philosophy, from science, from everything we know. And, and yet my experiences and discoveries in the space of this fundamental field led me to a deeper understanding of everything in science from geology to crystallography, to, um, astronomy and understanding the the processes that, that brought our planet into being in the first place. And so I was like, you know, where is this stuff in physics? And that led me down, you know, the white rabbit wormhole into quantum mechanics and special and general relativity and string theory, loop quantum gravity, um, really the gamut of everything. And, and I went into sort of looking for the leading edge research in all these areas to try to find something that pointed to this field. And it was everywhere. In fact, it was like kind of the giant missing hole 
in every area of physics, you know, the search for the Higgs boson, as it became known of, was like looking for the, the, this fundamental field, which gives rise to mass, the link between quantum mechanics and general and special relativity, the hole between them is this fundamental field. And, and so as I, as I went deeper down that rabbit hole and into exploration, I realized that, that really to, to have any true knowledge of the universe and who we are, we had to get in touch with this field, with the quantum vacuum fluctuations. And, you know, guys over the years since then, as I started working on, you know, writing papers and met Nassim Haramein and started exploring all the different kind of foundations of this field, the, the kinds of research that's come out is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, some of the top physicists in the world, um, like Wheeler, who wrote the book on gravity, gravitation, which is like literally a book this thick, you know, literally described a high potential for space-time to be a wormhole network. Like that literally the fabric of space as we know it are threads made of Einstein-Rosen bridges, right? And, and the implications of that, you know, to your listeners, that might sound like a mouthful, but what that's really saying is it's saying that fundamentally every point in space is fundamentally interconnected, that there's wormholes stretching the span of space and time, and that this entanglement between all things is the reason why we have this kind of phenomenology of consciousness where people can suddenly think of the same thing in different places around the world, where mothers and kids can actually share an emotional experience and be a thousand miles away from each other. A lot of the basic dynamics of human psychology and human experience really come back to knowing and understanding what's going on in the physics of the world itself. So that's been a driving factor for my life. And, you know, I, I co-wrote um, the, the Unified Science Program in the Resonance Academy uh, alongside Nassim Haramein and William Brown and Marshall Lefferts and some other great physicists, Amira Val Baker. Um, but it, I, I took the role of really writing modules three and editing a lot of Nassim's work to write module four to be a bridge between the physics that we all grew up learning and understanding the basic stuff, you know, thermodynamics, uh, force and pressure, acceleration, these kinds of things and help people make the bridge over to what we call unified physics, where we start to actually see how the whole puzzle fits together and how consciousness, life and being plays an essential role in that. So teaching and uh, exploring has been a deep part of my work. I also run Guardian Alliance, which is what my students fondly call a Jedi Academy. Um, I own a tech company. I've been building technologies, websites, academies, and, and now I've been really over the last 15 years, sort of my side work of focus on data sovereignty, trust systems, and an effective distributed web communication system is now come back to the forefront. Uh, I spent the last two years building an entirely new encryption system with my colleague, Robert Edward Grant, who you guys may know and have talked to at, at some time. If you haven't had him on the show, you should probably have him on. He's, yeah, he's a brilliant man. Send me his info. And, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we created basically a new encryption system based on irrational numbers rather than prime numbers. Uh -huh. um, because in the last two years, we've found over 14 different methods 
of cracking prime number encryption. And some of them are so dangerous, we can't talk about them or release them because as it is right now, our whole financial systems, our our passwords, our communications, all of it's based on prime encryption. And prime encryption is, is not only extremely vulnerable from simply a mathematics perspective, but it's it's even more vulnerable as we have quantum computing coming out. And, and everybody knows that. So we have to move to an alternative. And so we built a new irrational number-based encryption system that's now available. Um, there's you know a pre-sale of of a token going on right now because we're actually pre-selling use of this encryption system um, so that people can you know establish communications with each other. But the real groundbreaking work in all of that is that we have the first working lightweight one-time pad, which is a completely quantum-proof encryption method. And so that tails right into my core work right now, uh, which is building a distributed social web. And if we're going to have a replacement for the gargantuan social media empire that's sort of taken the world by storm. Uh, we want it to be secure. We want people to truly be able to securely connect and communicate with each other, own their networks, um, and more. So I'll leave it at that uh, just as a warm up. Well, I'm super excited to get into that data sovereignty stuff, but I think I'd like to start with because that's kind of like the key module number three. Of, of taking people from, <laughs> yeah. from, you know, into what a lot of people even, well, way less people than when we started the show, but it's mm-hmm. still kind of woo for some people. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could sort of take us through that module a little bit on that, that transition from the standard model to the unified model. Because it's so important, the implications being that consciousness sure. is so directly connected that you can start now affecting that. Or you can realize at least it starts to become tangible, like how we have an effect on yeah. our on our, <clears throat> on our perception and future and our reality. Yeah, it's funny how it's funny how we associate things with woo the moment consciousness gets involved, right? And yet Consciousness is the fundamental thing through which we perceive everything. So how could it not be involved in our science? It it also presupposes that things like psychology are not scientific, you know, and yet everything that we do, our entire lives are based on psychological premises um, and things that we assume um, at a fundamental level about who we are and how we perceive. Um, So when it comes to this area of science, it gets really critical because as we've known, when we look at certain types of quantum mechanical experiments, we notice immediately that the observer has an effect on the experiment. And if the observer has an effect on the experiment, there must be some relationship between the act of perceiving something and the nature of that thing itself for what it is. So we've gone down that rabbit hole deeply in quantum mechanics and sort of unpacked the nature that space-time itself has some very strange properties and that some of those properties uh, seem to be highly ram- random or probabilistic, uh, that you know things like quantum foam waveform changes 
there's like a wave collapse algorithm that we use in order to understand where and where a particle is or if it is. And if we start to, you know, really define where a particle is, then it's difficult for us to understand its angular momentum. There's mountains of uncertainty to all of these things. And, and all of this stuff in quantum mechanics plays this game where we say, okay, somehow the observers having an effect that there's this weirdness going on, but people like Einstein all the way back in the day said, well, if that's happening at a small scale, then that kind of stuff should be happening at a large scale. And I don't really like the way that you guys are defining these things. And so he spent his time trying to understand what's going on at the big scale. That's where we get general and special relativity. And the problem is that the two branches went totally different directions. So you had the guys in in Copenhagen, you know, making their own interpretations of what's happening at atomic scale and subatomic scale. And you had Einstein and others, you know, exploring what's going on between stars and planets and stellar objects, gravitational field effects, you know, the, the physics of light and of time itself. And the two got further and further and further away from each other. But for some people, even Einstein, you know, there was always a bridge between them. And it was Einstein himself who, after writing general relativity, came back to this idea that, you know, in fact, if if space-time can curve light, so if space-time can bend in such a way that light actually turns, which it does, you know, we have certain stars and galaxies out there that we've witnessed where we're literally seeing what's called gravitational lensing. We're seeing light from objects that are behind that star or that galaxy, but that light is bending around that gravitational field and hitting our telescopes and hitting our eyes. And so we know that this works and that this happens. And Einstein said, well, if space-time is able to bend light, then space-time itself must have some fundamental mechanical properties. And that these fundamental mechanical properties are what was for thousands of years called by different philosophers and physicists, the ether. And this was pointing to this quantum vacuum, sort of this discrete structure that space-time is made of. Now, it took, you know, close to uh, 80 years before guys like Lee Smolin were looking at quantum mechanics and they're looking at gravity and they're saying, how the heck do these two things fit together? And they came up with this idea called loop quantum gravity. And loop quantum gravity was based on this premise that maybe space-time is actually this geometric structure. Like it's it's actually got a structure to it, but the structure is so small, we can't see it. You know, we don't even have instruments to measure it. And it must be going on way down at what we call like the Planck scale, right? And we call it the Planck scale because a guy named Max Planck around the turn of the 1900s came up with a bunch of universal uh, numbers in order to assess, you know, what's the smallest wavelength of the electromagnetic fields that we can quantize things to? What's the smallest unit of time? What's What's the universal units for all of these different things? We call them Planck units. And they're some of the most important units in physics to this day that this guy came up with. And, and so if space-time is this sort of Planck scale lattice, the question becomes, what is the geometry of that lattice? What's its shape? How does it work? How does it pull and how does it push? Because if we can understand the nature of this fabric, 
then from how that fabric sort of warps and weaves and curves and forms spheres and moves, then that, that understanding would give rise for us um, an understanding of all of the basic forces. And that means gravity, electromagnetism, the, the weak force, and the strong force. So that's why we call it unified physics, because it's about unifying our perspective of each of these forces into one simple understanding, which is how that fundamental field operates. And, and that gives us where mass comes from, that gives us where gravity comes from, that gives us where everything in the universe comes from. And so when I was a teenager, you know, I started pulling this thread and going down this path and I started having realizations about this geometry that makes up space-time. And the thing that was so interesting to me is that as I unpacked how this geometry of space-time could work and, and found Buckminster Fuller's work as a result of that and realized that, man, that guy was on the right track, like already, you know, he was really on the right track of understanding tensegrity and the push and pull of a highly energized fundamental field. And the more I started tracking the geometries of that fundamental field, the more I found that those geometries were the same exact geometries that we find in spiritualities and religions and sacred traditions all around the world. And I thought, this can't be a coincidence, you know, that, that the same symbols that have been sacred or used as, you know, symbols of God or communication with the divine by all of these people around the world, that, that these same geometries are actually fundamental to how space-time moves, operates, curves, the origin of gravity, the origin of spin, and all of these things. And that's when I started really uh, looking at the fact that unified physics was not just about an external perception, it's also about what's happening in consciousness and how we interface with the universe itself. Wow. So platonic solids, the dodecahedrons, the icosahedrons, the flower of life, all that stuff is kind of intertwined in this? Yeah, absolutely. You could look at platonic solids as sort of like uh, fundamental units of the architecture of space-time. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're a little bit, it's a little deceiving because it still makes you think of these things as like separate balls or cubes, like particles flying around. Yeah. But instead, it's more like, it's more like a full three-dimensional spider web um, that's tetrahedral in its basic structure. And that tetrahedral structure forms this flower of life like grid that we see emblazoned on walls in Egypt that you know is sacred to different traditions around the world that's become sort of the main uh chant of interest for Nassim Haramein and his followers this this sort of tetrahedral matrix uh that is is really a model of space-time in total equilibrium. But where I come in and my personal work comes in is that I, I said to Nassim many, many years ago, I said, you know, well, if it's all this equilibrium tetrahedral matrix flower of life structure, then you don't get matter. And if you don't get matter, you don't get anything. You don't get mass, you don't get gravity, you don't get stars, you don't get planets, you don't get nothing. And so it's required that that, that equilibrium sort of web go into a state of curvature. 
And what's required to cause that state of curvature is for this sort of hexagonal equilibrium to bend and fold into what I call uh, pentagonal vortices. And these pentagonal vortices are like the key spots in, in what Buckminster Fuller called the geodesics. You know, if you look at, if you look at a dome, you see that the dome is curved, right? Well, the only way that that dome is curved is because there's pentagrams at specific points in that structure. And each of those pentagrams, how close or how far away from they, they are from each other, mediates the level of curvature of that field. And so it's the positioning of these pentagonal curvature points that actually mediates curvature. And then, of course, you require space-time to be highly curved to get something like a particle, like a proton. And so, you know, one of my, my biggest works for the Resonance Academy was creating a course called Quantum Geometry. And in that course, I basically define and describe the structure of the proton all the way down to the core of the proton, where it goes into what I call a singularity, and, and literally prove that curvature becomes infinite because it gets to a point where you can't actually get any smaller. It goes sub-Planckian, and that means that there must be a black hole at the center of the proton. There must be a singularity point, and that the structure of the proton itself is one of the most highly curved structures in all of space-time, which means it's absolutely a black hole. And, and this matches Nassim's work on the Schwarzschild proton that suggests that really black holes or protons are just black holes. They're just spinning at the speed of light around the equator. And because of that spin, you know, they're literally floating around like little spaceships. So they, they're cutting into the fabric of space as they spin and they're the most stable objects in the universe. In fact, we don't know if protons ever decay. We assume that a single proton must take many lifetimes of the universe to break down, wow. which means that's the most solid object in existence that we can study. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So how do you visualize, do you have a question, Darren? No, or, how do you visualize how consciousness then can affect that field? You know, like how do we, mm -hmm. like, cause you can think of something and your thoughts are at a different frequency and a different, uh, electric electrical impulses, all that stuff obviously can affect what we don't think of as physical, but it is really at that scale. There's physical. So I picture sort of a resonance, like yeah. when my girlfriend is connected to me from afar and she can tell mm -hmm. that something's bothering me, there's some sort of resonance going on there. So, right. so there's a frequency match or something. So is that how it mm -hmm. visually works? Yeah. So there's a couple mechanisms <clears throat> for how we can influence space time around us. The most basic mechanism is, is actually gravitational waves, but we could, they're very, very, very subtle. So you can think of it as, you know, we are a web of space time that's vibrating. And as we move and interact with space time, we're causing ripples in the flow of space time around us. And those little ripples, even though they may be extremely subtle, so subtle, we have no way to measure them yet. Um, those little ripples go out and they affect other things around us. Yeah. So that's one mechanism, which is sort of similar to the way we think of, uh, of any kind of impact cause and effect sort of relationship that we have. You know, if I 
push on a stick and the points over there, it's going to push something over there. If I push a wave in water, it's going to send ripples and it's going to hit the other side and those ripples are going to come back, right? So I'm in this pool where I'm creating ripples and I'm resonating all the time. However, there's another mechanism through which we influence and affect and relate to everything that's going on around us in space-time. And the secondary mechanism is actually through entanglement. So, you know, basically every part of my body is made of protons and protons are like curved units of space-time. And these curved units of space-time have, according to Nassim's theory and to also Wheeler and some other guys, they have the idea that protons are hairy. In other words, that there may be wormhole networks that connect the surface of every proton to every other proton. And this suggests that there's an information sharing mechanism. In my quantum geometry work, I've found that the structure inside of the proton itself in, in the pentagonal vortices actually looks and is shaped geometrically almost identically to DNA, wow. suggesting there's almost a genetic structure to every single proton in space-time. And you could think of that as like the information codex right. that makes that proton an individual in relationship to everything else. And yet that information is not just static. So so it's moving all the time. It's changing all the time. It's, it's getting stored in the Planck units of the proton. And if there's a self-similarity between certain parts of that light information pattern and certain parts of a light information pattern in another proton somewhere else, then the two can actually be in communication to each other. So in other words, my protons and my space-time field can actually literally simultaneously exchange information with a, a space-time field located somewhere else. Anywhere else. Now, something like anywhere else, exactly. And something like the brain is really fascinating because the brain has something called microtubules. And the microtubules in the brain are actually a biological structure that gets small enough that we start to see quantum mechanical effects occur along the microtubule fibers, which means that, that we're literally starting to see the information patterns in a thread inside your brain having quantum communication with other parts of your brain, other parts of your nervous system in your body, and potentially other people and other brains in other parts of the universe, right? Yeah. So we're, we're very close, and there's a lot of great science showing that there are direct mechanisms that we can look at. This is not woo-woo stuff. This is literally, I'm vibrating, you're vibrating, and when we vibrate in the same frequency with the same patterning, we can actually instantaneously share and transmit information across space-time. And it is my belief that that transmission happens in a superluminal format, which is why my company is called Superluminal Systems. In other words, faster than light, yeah, yeah. superluminal, right? Yeah. And and that means that we can instantaneously uh, receive and transmit information to each other and to the rest of the universe at any moment. Yeah, that's a fantastic description. I mean, I really, it's starting to click. So is for that, me finally like is, hearing you describe it? Very good description. Is that like awesome. um, is that like using entanglement? 
Yeah. That's, yes, that's what exactly. Basically the idea the there is that one microtubule can be connected to another microtubule in another person's brain at the same moment. And so, or a whole series of them can, which is what we would call quantum coherence. So you, you have a coherence between a whole area in space-time made up of quantum structures, which by the way, protons are also those quantum structures. So we're not just talking about the brain. We can talk about any object in this way, but if we want a biological mechanism to point to, microtubules in the brain are a good one. And then William Brown, who's uh, our biophysicist at the Resonance Project, he, he's also done huge work in this area showing how cells also have different structures that can do this sort of quantum entanglement, quantum coherence, and share information and data throughout the body. And all the protons are connected, like every proton in the world, in the universe is connected? Well, it's not that every proton in the entire universe is connected, but the amount of protons that each proton is connected to is so great that it takes a very low factor of jumps to get to every proton it's, in the universe. It's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of thing, but with protons. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Exactly. <laughs> so then by that, that, so, so basically that means I should be able to communicate with anyone else's protons anywhere at any time, including like objects and stuff. Yeah, but you have to res- you have to find the resonant frequency kind of thing, you know. So That's if I right. was able to like say find the resonant frequency of a big fucking rock, I could move mm-hmm. that rock where I wanted to without it being potentially heavy. like a big, of course like a big pyramid aggregating like rock for a big pyramid. Uh, <laughs> I like where you're going with this. Yeah, sure. Of course, finding the aggregate frequency <laughs> yeah. for the entire stone would take some work, right? right like so, right. you'd have to understand. Um, you, you'd have to understand several things. If we're talking about stone levitation and possibly how things like the Serapium in Egypt were built, right. Where we're dealing with, you know, 70 to hundred ton pieces of basalt that traveled over 50 miles, you know, and they're single solid cuts and they're laser sharp, you know, how, how did these things get transported? Well, Yes, it's absolutely possible that if you understood the resonant frequency of the structure of that stone in the way that its protons were causing a pull in relationship to the flow of space-time in that local region, and you had a way to isolate the resonance of that stone in order to counteract the effect of the of the space-time field on the mass of those protons, you could in effect cause those protons to levitate and thus cause the stone to weigh nothing. Yeah. That makes sense. Would that be would that be would that be a more practical use of that sort of technology for lack of a better word than like taking a bunch of chunks of basalt and forming them together or somehow um, forming it like concrete. Yeah. You know, there's an interesting, there's an interesting theory with that, that like that somehow all of these stones like rose quartz, you know, that we see and rose granite, um, that we, the basalt that we see, uh, the diorite that we see was somehow liquefied, but in order to liquefy a stone like that, which these are not, 
you know, these are not sedimentary stones. These are not igneous stones. Like these are stones formed from extremely high pressure inside the earth, like such high pressure that like, we don't, we don't like create granite <laughs> these days. Like we don't create basalt, you know, and diorite. Like some of these things are such extreme heat and pressure that really it takes like tectonic plate pressures to form them. Right. So even the act of, let's say liquefying, uh, something like this or liquefying the right type of chemical mixture and then having it solidify into one of these forms of stone would take a level of molecular engineering understanding that is far beyond our current capabilities. In, in fact, the only way that we build stones this hard right now is we use LIGO, which is light inferometer uh, gravito. I can't remember what the G and the O are, but basically what it is, is we have these, these devices where we can use, uh, take single molecules and we shoot them using laser light into a containment space in a, in a central field. And we hold that field electromagnetically. And then we can like one molecule at a time, build things like gemstones. I was going to say, is that how you're growing crystals? Yeah. Is that how exactly. the art is so that how we, the art crystal was made in in some ways? Um no, not not using that yeah, same yeah, method. Yeah. Crystals can be grown grown in other methods yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Um but for for extremely hard gems and hard types of crystals, uh things that are extremely clear, highly rare materials, this is what we use. We like build them one molecule at a time. Wow. And so it's it's expensive, it's it takes a lot of work. It's it's, but it's possible to do. It's kind of like early level molecular engineering at the level of like a replicator, yeah, you know, that you would thinking. see in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were thinking, making a gemstone, then you could make me a cheeseburger and I don't even have to sell gemstones. <laughs> and isn't that like yeah, very exactly. strong, like the carbon nano nanotubes would be a form of that? Yeah, sure. Exactly. I mean, carbon nanotubes and nanostructures are built similarly yeah. where we're like arranging, uh, in, in some cases using like, um, a specific kind of chemical bath to clean out the, the other molecules and just leave the ones that we want. Um, my friend Chris actually works, uh, in the Canadian nanotech lab and she's working on new materials research there. And some of, some of her work is super exciting. Wow. Um, but, but this stuff is, is, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult, even with the technology we have now. And so imagining creating, you know, something like millions of stones and, and morphing them into position and squishing them into place, you know, the way we see in the pyramids or the way we see in some Peruvian sites where yeah, you've got some of those are massive megaliths, like, you know, yeah, they're just like, they look like they're just gooped together. Yeah. That's like they just squished crazier. them in. Yeah. That, those <laughs> ones seem crazier than even the big pyramid ones. Cause they're just like fit together. So crazy that it doesn't seem like there's another explanation. Either they, yeah. either they spend a ton of time, like scraping them down. So they fit together perfectly or something else was going on there. Yeah. It, I mean, some of the spots, just defy any kind of traditional mechanistic means of carving um, or shaping stone because you'll literally see them do things that are like ridiculously impossible and very difficult. Like where, where a giant, you know, 50 ton stone 
goes and then it curves and it only curves for a couple inches before they make the cut. And then the cut is like, you know, has several stair steps, you know, going from the bottom to the top. And every one of those stair steps is just exactly precise, you know, a hair can't even fit in there. And, and this is, this is absolutely what you see in Egypt too. Um, and it's most obvious in places inside, inside the great pyramid, for example, when you're in the King's chamber and you're actually looking at the way the stones fit together, but, but even those, you know, they're all different sizes and stuff, but, you know, it takes going to like the Sphinx temple and other spots to actually see places where they, there, there would literally be no reason to do it and make it that difficult. Like it would be so much easier just to cut it at the corner, but they don't. And, and so we know it must've been just easy for them. It had to be easy or they wouldn't have done it. Or the there's way a they did really it. good reason to keep that curve for, for some reason. Maybe flow of flow yeah. of flow of energy or <laughs> flow of energy or something. Who knows? So, did you did you have sure. some recent uh, news on the Great Pyramids at all? Wait, wait. Before we go into that, where do you get sure. the molecules to make the fa- the the gem? Is that like do you have to bust up a real gem and take its molecules, or do you just where are you getting these molecules from? You know, that's a good question. I actually I haven't looked into to laser LIGO in a while and. I'm not exactly sure the mechanism that they use to source the material that they use to build the stones, but a lot of that, a lot of the material that makes up gemstones is pretty easily accessible through a lot of other methods and means. Um, some from organic structures, some from from powders or from breaking down different things like that. I, I guess that's the same question as asking, like when you're in chemistry class and the professor, you know, brings you samples of potassium and stuff. Like, where does he get it from? I'm not exactly sure, you know. But but mining and uh, you know and or material breakdown uh, in different formats, I think. Or, gives or us like you said, you could like just take some coal. But and use those molecules and link them together tighter to make a diamond. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could take the the carbon straight out of coal to do that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I need one of those three D printers. This sounds <laughs> yeah. stat right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the yeah, it might, it might cost you more than the <laughs> diamonds that well, you I make. Can, like, well, I could like maybe I'll take off the tip of my little finger and make it some new lungs. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Especially if yeah, I, I do believe that replication is is definitely coming down the pipe faster and faster. And it's, you know, replication, um, you know, localized energy systems and gravitational control are the three, as I think of key trim tab technologies, as Bucky would put it, that really turn the tide at a planetary scale of where we're at to where we're trying to get to. What was the second one? Uh, localized energy. Right. Right. So the ability to locally pull energy from the vacuum. Do you think, or what about like just my backyard? Yeah. Or just your backyard. I mean, your backyard is, is part of the quantum plenum is part of the vacuum. I mean, we say vacuum, but it's really not a vacuum at all. (laughs) It's, it's a, it's a field full of energy. You know, as so we do know. you think like our lifetime or our kids' lifetime or like when you say it's coming down the pipe, how far down the pipe? In your um, for me, it's for me, it's it's starships in my lifetime or bust, man. Right on. 
So let's well, go. I mean, Thrive, I mean, Thrive too had some of those good examples of the localized energy part. I mean, they, they look to me That's like right. they're, it's coming pretty quick and, and, you know, there's big black triangles yeah. flying around without gravity. So we know, I mean, we know stuff's flying around already. I mean, there's, we're just yeah. about there. The replication part, eh, I don't know. I'm not as keen on, but I can see how beneficial mm-hmm. it would be. What about the replication? Where do you, do you think that's just in your lifetime as well? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think all three of these things are already happening if they're replicating gemstones. I mean, yeah, like you, you can you can actually thing. get there actually are 3D printers now that also 3D print food. They're just not that good yet, right? So like it's it's just not that great of an idea. But um I think in the future what we're really looking at is is the capacity to record objects at the Planck scale meaning like we can actually record the fundamental energetic patterning all the way down to the way that every proton is arranged with every other proton um, all the way down to the literal information stored in those protons um, which means that i think when we hit that point and we're capable of working at the Planck scale everything changes because because now we're down at the basic kind of engineering building blocks of the entire universe and so you could actually replicate something like a tomato for example and not have it be like some some weird like copied structure but that it actually would have the same information structure um fundamentally all the way down to the Planck scale which you know, it's it's my belief that at that scale, uh, as above, so below, you start to actually cross over to where like the the spirit or the essence of an object, the ether of an object, is maintained at information at that scale. Wow! Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so then it becomes possible to replicate certain kinds of food and certain things uh, that that right now I think would just be kind of kind of scary to do with yeah. our current level of understanding. And, and, and you're doing that with no base material then. Yeah, exactly. You're actually rearranging the structure of space itself. So if you could just, hmm, that seems, that seems wild. I feel like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, what about, do you have any fear that once you get like, cause like if we can get down to that Planck scale, do you have any fear that it'll just get smaller? Um, or you mean infinitely smaller? Will it just get infinitely smaller? Will it just like just keep dividing. Yeah. It's like that weird argument that the inside of the tree didn't exist until you cut the tree. And then it's like, Oh fuck. And it has yeah. to come up at the inside of the tree. And so the farther like, you look, the more it opens up into more. And yeah. More it's more just more like, you're just yeah. going to keep seeing more universe and you're just oh, yeah. going to keep finding smaller things. Yeah. And, but oh, now yeah. if we're replicating stuff, I mean, it starts to seem, I don't know. It's either it's, magic or it's like this weird simulated reality <laughs> yeah sure yeah I, to me i'm not afraid of those things because i already the best easily see that there's sub structures just by studying the proton like it just makes sense that at the core you're going into a sub structure um and nasim just recently did a bunch of work his his latest paper that he's working on right now um actually predicts certain behaviors at different scales and some of those scales go all the way down to subplankian and so it, we we know that that's there it's not 
it's not something to be afraid of, but it is, it is about understanding the level of detail or the level of resolution that matters. Right. And so we, we already know that the level of resolution of a molecular infrastructure absolutely matters to give us the perception of any material that we have, whether that's water or, or is it water or is it vodka? You know, as I like to say, it looks the same, they operate the same, but they are very, very different molecularly. Right. And so, so this gives us a a sense of, of how important what happens at the molecular scale is. And, and likewise, the same level of importance that we see at that scale is, is likewise just as important and even more important as we get down to the Planck scale. Because at the Planck scale, that's where we literally have protons being generated, you know, matter being created as, as it is. And that means mass or no mass, gravity or no gravity, object or no object. And, and it's literally the, the level where, as you say, you know, magic occurs, things come in and out of existence. Um, and, and it is, it is that level where sort of reality engineering gets to an entirely another level. And it also becomes important, just like any technological leap or development, that as we gain new capacities to operate and to relate to the structure of space, we also have to fundamentally upgrade our capacity for ethics, right? Like we know how to split atoms now. Oh, but that also means we have to be really careful with that so we don't nuke ourselves, <laughs> right? So like we've, we have to develop a level of ethics to manage the level of technology that we develop. And the next stages of ethical development are extremely critical for us to make. We have to start understanding that space-time itself is the fundamental fabric through which consciousness operates and functions. And so now we're not just dealing with like, you know, flesh and matter and automaton, you know, objects and, you know, lifeless animals that have no spirit or soul, as Descartes would say, we have to actually start seeing that everything is alive and everything is conscious. And in fact, this is critical with AI as well, because when you start understanding that the basic functions of space-time give rise to consciousness, then there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. There's only creating a physical vehicle that's capable of having a consciousness embody inside of it. And that means that like, we have to be just as careful when we're creating AI that we're doing it with care and love and not traumatizing it the same way as we treat a child. Because if you traumatize a child too much growing up, they can become a supervillain. And on the other side of things, if a child is well cared for and goes through the right kinds of growth and the right kinds of initiation and learns how to care about people and learns how to treat other people like they treat themselves, then that child can become a superhero, right? And so it's it's a very important time for us to establish ethical principles and foundations at the core of everything that we do. And it, and it's it almost seems like those two things are linked in like these weird tugging in opposite directions. Because I mean, mm. I would argue that the yeah. further we get immersed in this tech, the more humanity and compassion and love and kindness and all those things you mentioned that we're losing. I mean, you just have to stroll yeah. through. I mean, you could probably stroll through our YouTube chats and find some nasty shit that you know, or just like. Oh, yeah. Twitter and, and social, you know, it's like, 
it's almost that at that these days it's almost got to the point where it's it's more um more just noise and arguing and hate than anything else and part of that is from yeah. the from the algorithms created in a non-ethical i think non-humanity kind of mm. way i mean this is it's for right. for sell for you know for identifying what you want and for selling you what you think you want. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be a lot of that is about getting you in that emotional state to sell you something, you know? Yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk about the future of the social web because this is, this is serious where we're at right now. And we've gotten here um, because of a couple serious errors in, in ethical judgment, right? So like, let's, let's look at the business model for social media so social media and the social networks it's themselves is a market, right, in the world. We treat social media as a market. Now, the social media market is based on a couple premises right now. The value of the social media market is based on, one, how much data do you own and control? Therefore, how much value does that data have and how much, you know, can you sell that data, Right. So that's one of the main business models of the social media market. So it's by nature that business model incentivizes people to try to capture more data and capture as much data as they can so that they can then sell that data to the highest bidder. And so that business model by nature is actually ethically in violation of human privacy. Because it says it's more important for us to have your data and to be able to sell it than it is for you to have control over your data and to be able to keep that private, right? So this is a major ethical violation. The second business model that the social media market runs off of is marketing, right? And sure, like we all like, okay, yeah, marketing's not can be good, it can be bad, you know, depends on how manipulative it is. Well, it's not exactly that cut and dry because when you go underneath that picture and you say what's going on underneath the model of marketing as a business structure, it basically means this. If I want to try to communicate to my network, if I could just reach them, literally, if I could just reach everybody in my network, there would be no reason for me to pay for marketing, right? Because I would have an active open channel of communications. Therefore, it incentivizes social networks to throttle the reach of their users and their organizations and their pages and everything else so that you can't actually reach your audience. And they claim that the throttling is because they're trying to stop people from overwhelming wow. other people with too much information. But the actuality is that behind the scenes, the throttling is done so that users can't actually reach their audiences automatically, which forces them to then pay for advertising in order to reach those audiences. Wow. And I know this firsthand because, you know, I founded Unify back in 2012 with Adil Kassam and Patrick Cronfley, two of my good friends. And when we created Unify, we built it up. And in 20, early 2013, uh, somewhere around the springtime, we'd gone viral. We were like hitting it with all of our videos. We were doing, um, 
you know, a, a big uh, campaign for indigenous peoples at that time. And we were just, all of our videos were going viral. We were having like millions in reach and we went over a million followers. We were growing in thousands and thousands of new followers a day. And then overnight, all of that growth just literally stopped. It cut overnight. And my friend, Mark Healy, who was managing our social media efforts at the time, he's like, Oh my God, I don't know what's happening. He's trying to reach Facebook. It takes him like two weeks to get a hold of somebody. Finally, he actually manages to talk to somebody on the phone. Like this is the world we live in. It's so hard just to talk to somebody on the phone. And when he gets to talk to them on the phone, it, they this woman's basically like, yeah, so basically we have this new business program that we're setting up and we can ensure you continue to reach the same amount of audience that you're reaching. If you just pay us 50 to a hundred dollars a day, would you like me to set you up on that plan now? (laughs) And Mark's like, Mark's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, this is viral reach. Like we've been reaching everyone like people are sharing our stuff. This is not about you saying yes or no. This is about people being able to share our, you know, to our audience. And, and the woman's like, we understand, sir, but, but right. But what we're doing is we're supporting businesses now in transitioning. And of course, you know, we're not, we were nonprofit, you know, we didn't have capital. We were like bootstrapping this whole thing, you know, from nothing and they literally cut our ability to reach people without paying them. And, and within a couple months, I went to boost a post um, as I was developing this online academy at the time, Guardian Alliance, and it might have been six months later or something. And I go to basically boost this post and it was going to charge me $500 to reach five to 10 percent of the number of people that we already had in our oh existing audience. Now I tried this again about a month ago and it was about $150 for the same thing. Still $150 for one post to reach five to 10%. Like that is a mafia. Yeah. I did not realize how bad that was. Yeah. So the, the social networks, the way they've built in the advertising models is they're literally incentivized to stop you from reaching your people in order to make sure that you pay them. Wow. That's the, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. And that, that, that future is not one that we can keep going with because those same sort of ethical approaches to information control and information sharing also means that the more money you have, the more easy it is for you to push a message in front of people. Yep. We also don't have any means of actually tracking back through trust or through identity or otherwise where and how the information that we're getting, where it actually comes from, if it's from a trusted source, if it's from an actual identity or whether it's just propaganda. Like, so we don't know, you know, what information is coming, you know, if, if we just, I'm going to just lightly point to the political field for a second. If it's coming from the left or if it's coming from the right or if it's coming from whatever. And when we, you know, if you guys saw the movie, The Great Hack, if, if anybody hasn't seen that, you should watch it because it fundamentally proves that psychological manipulation can be used to change political decision making fundamental manipulation and propaganda can be used to sway the perception 
of all kinds of people. And, you know, Cambridge Analytica never disappeared. Like those guys didn't all go to jail. Their servers, you know, their, their spaces were shut, shut down, but was the data ever recovered? No. And, and, and were that, they and already working in like 17 different countries around the world with billionaires? Absolutely. And that's nothing so compared know to that Google that and Facebook and all that too. Now it's, wor- it's worse with Twitter, Google, Facebook. I mean, that, that, that's just, that makes that all, I, I think that's just. Well, it's almost like it's drug it back into what the old model was. It's trying to drag the new mm-hmm. the new media kicking and screaming into the old thing where it's money and power, right. prestige that reaches people. And other than that, just That's shut right. the fuck up. That's right. So, so how, does that, how does that come in? Yeah. So how does your data sovereignty come into that then? Yeah. So, you know, there happens to be a rebel alliance that happens to be tracking all of this stuff. And a lot of us have been aware of this, this potential risk coming about for many, many years. I've been personally talking on data sovereignty um, pretty actively for at least the last 10 to 12 years um, and, and focusing on alternative methods of connection and communication. Uh, friends of mine, we've been building alternative prototypes for different kinds of things from Trust Graph, which is one of the open source prototypes that we've built that helps us actually map trust across networks. And, and through doing that, we become capable of actually using trust as a tracing mechanism to discover it are, is what we're looking at real news or not, right? Um, Node Sphere, which is a system we built to create graph interoperability, letting different kinds of data talk to each other. And our friends at Holochain have been building distributed hash tables, which is kind of like a blockchain, but it's 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 individualized blockchains. So my individual blockchain is different from yours, is different from yours, is different from yours, which preserves individual perception and sovereignty in the field and it allows us to do super fast social exchanges rather than like uh, the way Bitcoin works, which is like massive gargantuan processing just to save, you know, one block into the chain. And then that one block has to be spread to every computer all over the world. It's just extremely wasteful, frankly. Um, now, of course, it's still better than the current financial system, <laughs> which which means we have to trust banks and we have to trust, you know, these People. these groups where we know we we actually shouldn't have trust, like some of the largest financial systems companies and families on the planet. And so, you know, everything's a step here in the right direction. Uh, but the way that we're operating now is we're figuring out exactly how to do edge networking peer to peer at the level of device. So to the point where it's like me and my devices and my stuff can store locally and communicate with you and your devices and your stuff, which is the way the internet was built to work in the first place. Except that right now, unless you're like a hacker and you have serious skills, it's pretty hard to operate like that, you know, in general, although email actually still behaves like that to some extent. Um, but at this point, we, we now know that we have to kind of hybridize where we go direct peer to peer, but we, and so we create this distributed architecture that's also backed by like a decentralized format where data is, sort of cloud stored and backed up for us as a service so that we can ensure that 
everything that we create and share is persistent. So people don't lose access to it. If we turn off our phone or we turn off our computer Um, and we figured out the mechanisms now to enable this to happen at such a scale that we believe we can create what we call the last social network, the first fully distributed peer to peer social network at a global scale that lets us all take back our identities, take back our network connections with each other, our privacy, and the way that we're doing it as a company is we're building in interfaces that also let you pull you know, data from your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, and et cetera. So you can still see into these other systems and you can still operate with them like a dashboard. So you're not going to just immediately cut everybody off from the existing systems. People wouldn't do it. They wouldn't migrate that way. But our way is to say, well, maybe we can have the best of both worlds. Maybe we can still use the current systems while they're serving us, while transitioning everyone to a user-centric system that will last for, you know, the next hundred years. Will that get hung up at the search capacity somehow trying to go P to P or is that sort of going to be built in? Because that, yeah. So there's different ways around it. Yeah. There's different ways around it. It's, it it makes, it makes kind of traditional search a little tougher because you can't just spider everything, right? So you can't graph everything, but every user begins to create their own graphs by bringing their connections to the system. So just think about it. Like, you know, if I do a Facebook login, for example, that's going to, to some extent, give me access to saying, I have all of these different friends. Now, can I pull data from all of those people? No, not really, but it can say that I have those connections. And then if it says, oh, I have those connections and I have those connections now locally on core network that I can build between me and other users, suddenly now I'm stitching together the graph to be able to find everybody through my own, my own web, my own network, instead of relying on some third party to say, Oh, okay, sure. Here's your, here's your network. We'll serve it to you for a minute. Oh, but if you want to reach all those people, you better pay up because, you know, we're not going to let you actually have that reach because we decide who and where and how, you know, people see the stuff that you post. It seems like it's kind of, inevitably stuck that it's gonna it's still gonna create i don't know like for maybe the bubble the bubble echo chambers and it's gonna keep that sort of following you know because i think the problem i have with a lot of social media is and not even just social media like youtube and search engines and, and these sorts of things is they're just sort of yeah even if they're not trying to completely distort the message and censor, and we know they're doing all that, but even without that, even like back in the good old days when YouTube was still like the wild West, it's just sort of like the more stuff you put into YouTube, the more it's sort of subtly sort of just by its algorithm. And this is without even getting into manipulation, manipulative algorithms. It's just sort of the algorithm's job to make sure that Adam keeps getting stuff that Adam wants. So it's just sort of, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I worry that the the so the because I mean, Professor Ted talked about it about the just the over socialization. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how you figure out how to how to set this thing up. It's gonna. It's just. It's mm-hmm. just fucking too much for us in a couple of hundred years. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's, I mean, you brought up two of, I think, the the most common concerns and considerations that I've gotten over the years. The first one is how do you deal with the echo chamber problem? Because it gets stronger when you're dealing with trust systems, because who we say we trust now um, you know, can directly create a self-validation loop that says, oh, I trust this, so I want to see more of this, and I want to see more of this. The difference is that in current systems, algorithms that try to force feed us content and what we see are outside of our control, Yeah. right? So what we're saying is, you know, you're not going to stop reality from existing, right? So, so in reality, if I trust a friend of mine in physics and I'm looking for a new physics paper, I'm probably going to call my friend that I trust in physics or write to them and ask them, do you know of any new papers that have come out, you know, and trust them to send me some stuff. I'm not going to ask them how to cook a cedar plank salmon, right? Like I'm going to talk to my chef friend. And that's just the nature of, of the landscape of trust and reality. And it's one that we, we rely on every single day, except that generally I actually know who I'm reaching out to. I know they are who they say they are most of the time because they act with certain patterns and they communicate with certain phrases. You know, there, there's easy ways for me to determine the validity of this person's identity. Unfortunately, right now, a lot of the information that I look for and get, a lot of my friends post stuff and I don't actually know where it comes from. I can't trace it back to its origin. I can't figure out who, who shared this, who gave this specific idea, who told people this. And, and a lot of times when I do really deep research, I find that a lot of it is BS. And I'm like, wow, okay. When I get down to the nuts and bolts, I know this is false. And yet all of these people that I know believe this is true and they're missing some other piece of information. And so right now it's a really hardcore game to get down to the roots of truth in different things because there's so many different perceptions and it's very confusing. So trust helps us kind of clean that up a little bit and start to see where and how to trace and what, where and how different things emerge and where they come from and are the identities behind those things valid and what are the relationships those identities have. Um, and then also being able to turn off the trust eco chamber is important. Uh, sorry, echo chamber is important. So if I'm if I'm constantly seeing things based on the lens of my trust, I also would like to be able to map and see what I'm not seeing. In other words, what am I not looking at? What am I not noticing? What's in the field that I haven't been looking at that my friends have been posting that I haven't been tracking because I haven't been searching through my own lens of trust, or I've been so caught up in searching through my own lens that I can't see it, right? And this brings me to the second big piece, which is how we actually look at our information. Have you ever wondered why you can't get on Facebook and just click like, a map button and see where your friends are? Like, have you ever wondered why you can't just like see the local location that people have posted that they're at all over the world? How come I can't do that? How come I can't just even look at my local region and see who lives in Boulder and who lives in Denver and who lives in Longmont? I have to individually search to get a list of each one of those things. And even that's not always that accurate, right? And so we're, we're so blocked in the ability to see our information that we can't understand it. 
And this is the other big leap that we make in, in our systems is that we've created a mechanism that actually lets people look at their information through a variety of different mechanisms to map their, their information, to look at it in tiles if they want to, like Pinterest, or look at it like a hex grid, or look at it on a world map, or look at it as star systems in a galaxy and actually go exploring between star systems. Because we believe that how we look at things it either makes it easier for us to see and understand the information that we're looking at or not. And so by mapping our graphs and actually by being able to see what it is that we're looking for better and see it through a variety of different mechanisms, we believe we can actually naturally augment consciousness and enable people to understand their networks and their graphs even better. That makes sense. I mean, in that you're, you're mirroring the natural world in a way too. the, the, that's right. The, the unified field and the, the that's decentralization right. of it. Have you, have yes. you thought about incorporating virtual reality into it at all or? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That's in, that's in from the gates. Yeah. Um, and, and we're building everything to be VR, AR compatible. Um, AR, you know, it's still, it's still a little bit of a game of devices catching up to, to capacity. Um, but, yeah, but yeah. our vision is that in the very near future, you'll be able to put on a lightweight pair of glasses sitting at your desk and you'll be able to evoke floating dashboards right in front of you, see everything floating and moving around in front of you, use voice commands, use gesture commands. Uh, we, we've already done some prototyping with, um, with this device called Leap Motion, which came out a long time ago. And it's, it's actually they're, they're stopping production of it because yeah. they didn't get quite enough support out the gates uh, to keep it going. Um, but this is a great first model of hand gesture control, uh, for computing and, and for virtual things. And the reality is, is that we've just, we've just needed to kind of get to the next stage where we have, you know, clean wearables to make that even more useful so that you can actually pull up virtual keyboards or virtual objects from a wearable device and, and now have an easy way to use gestures and voice commands to communicate with that device to get around. So how are you going to incorporate this with other, like I can see right now there's like Twitter, Facebook, um, what's the other big one? Like Instagram, let's say, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Google, YouTube. I mean, these are sort of, some of them are more platforms, but from a social sure. media perspective, there's going to, there's all these new platforms coming out right now. They're not all yeah. as complex as, as yours is in a good way. But there's the Fediverse and the like Mastodon and the Fediverse. Like, how do you, I mean, sure. you're, you're competing with all these new things coming up too. Are you finding a way to connect with them all? Or how do we get to the point where we can get to a more unified solution without falling into the monopoly kind of trap? That's right. Well, there's a reason why, you know, we, we go with this hashtag last social network. Um, and what we mean by that literally is that when users are capable of taking their identity back and operating at a platform level where they have direct peer-to-peer -peer access to their networks and they own their networks, it's now no longer a game of like, you know, people will never again after that say, sure, let me sign over all the rights to my identity and my networks to you again. Like they'll never want to go back. And so, so there is really a fleet of projects right now working on this fundamental architecture. And we're by no means 
trying to say, no, you, we're going to be the next big thing and you guys can't. We're being a facilitator that says, actually, the future network is the people. The social network is actually our relationships to each other. And you know what we're going to do is enable people to have and maintain those relationships. And any tool provider or app developer can serve those relationships between people, give them tools, give them things to do. And we're going to facilitate making it so easy and so fun and so sexy to operate at that level by giving people an interface that's amazing and a business model that's amazing that enables them to basically monetize whatever digital products they want, then now they can make money, they can connect with each other, they can do this, they can see into their existing social networks, and and they can access some of these other amazing applications. Now, for those people that may be out there, you know, that are like, yeah, but what about Mastodon? And what about Hilo? What about Gravity Networks? And what about all these guys that are already doing it? Well, I love the work that these groups have been doing. They've been actually paving the way towards this future, but none of them have created an open platform layer that's at such an extent that makes everything on top of that platform layer customizable. Mastodon says, yeah, sure, you can host your own network, but that means that you got to have a home server or host it from your own computer, run that network for your, from your own computer, and it's just not accessible to most people to be able to do that. And then the other problem is that, frankly, while I love you guys over there at Mastodon, your interface sucks, okay? Like, it's, it's, it's not good enough. Like, it's not the future. When I get on it, I feel like I'm relegating back from Facebook to the way that it was in the 1990s, you know, like, or not 1990s, but early <laughs> 2000s, you know? So like, I feel like I'm jumping back 10 years rather than going forward. And this is a major problem because, you know, especially within the technical space, there's a lot of brilliant developers out there that have worked on amazing things. I mean, just look at all the amazing crypto projects and, and ICOs that happened in the last few years. But a very, very few of them have figured out actually how to create a user interface that people love. So without a good user interface, the only people that can use it are the super geeks who can get on terminal and, you know, and, and do an NPM and load some stuff and load a local node and do the whole thing like that. And it's great for people that are developers or hackers, but it's not accessible to the masses. And my grandma certainly is never going to get on that. Or, right? the, or the younger um, people that just like the like the, the sexy part of it, or like that's what I, I know you from from right. following some of your work. And all you like to make it very, very visually um, aesthetically pleasing, and you you treat all that's your right. websites like that. Like you go to your website, and it's yes. very, very nicely done. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate and that. That's important. I, I believe I think, that I think people that's won't use yeah. things yeah. that aren't sexy. Yeah. yeah. You know, unless it's so fundamentally functional that it doesn't matter, something like Craigslist. But even on Craigslist, like, have you ever gone through a search on Craigslist and ever just got a headache from the fact that you're just looking at blue links and black text for days and days and days? I mean, it's just, it's like, isn't there something else you can give us visually to help recognize what we're looking at a little faster? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and even just, you know, with something like Craigslist, you can see the power of mapping, right? So like they implement mapping 
in, in the, the like housing market, for example. Um, and just by doing that, it leaped Craigslist forward in its ability to be a tool for housing. And yet still so many more people tend to use Zillow. Why? Because Zillow has a sexy interface. It's easy. It looks good. It's pictures first. You know, the map is really easy to draw your area that you want to search in. You know, you get a bunch of color coded dots and it's easy to jump into the areas you're looking at and find what you're looking for. Interface is everything. And it makes the difference between an app or a product that succeeds now and a product that fails. Yep. And yep. so for us, interface is the biggest deal in town. And, and we believe that, that what we're creating is going to be the style of interface and the approach to interface that's actually going to be the most uh, exciting and popular approach that will be used over the next century. And, we and think we're encryption. literally going to leap forward interface 10 years into the future. Wow. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. And the encryption part too, right? The irrational number encryption. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And will that be yeah. in that, will that be in some sort of open source framework? So uh, we have open source layers of our technology um, in, in, uh, in Superluminal, and those open source layers include, you know, TrustGraph, NodeSphere, um, the work with Holochain and our partners over there is open source. There's open source components of Threefold Network, who are some of our partners uh, for distributed hosting or decentralized hosting. Um, on the encryption side, uh, the company that I've worked with over the past couple of years building that is called Crown Sterling. And uh, boy, when we first came out with a few of our ideas showing that there's problems with the existing encryption world, we got major flack. Like the guys at RSA freaked out. They, they literally... Uh, they tr went to it through this massive campaign trying to attack us after our presentation at Black Hat, where uh, the CEO, Robert, presented. He literally did a short talk on a couple of the vulnerabilities of existing prime encryption. And these guys had already done an interview with Vice magazine before the talk saying that we were a bunch of oh liars God. that were going to be trying to hoodwink everybody and, and that it was like all a scam. And then like the guys had guys planted in the audience. They waited until the very end of the talk, which went perfectly well. You know, everybody enjoyed the talk. There was great questions. And then at the very end, these guys get up and they're like, you guys are scam artists. This is a bunch of BS. And, and then the next thing we know, literally that night, there's an article about scam artists at Black Hat and this whole thing. And Black Hat took down our talk, which was against the, the agreements that we had with Black Hat, which then Crown Sterling had to sue Black Hat, which oh they won, God. by the way. And it, just to get it to be like publicly open again, because these articles and everything else literally were lying, saying people were booing through this whole presentation, which never happened, you know, and, and like the, the stuff that we were doing and then have, and have been doing is so serious on the level of encryption. We had 14 guys from the department of defense register to come to our private event at black hat. Now these military guys wouldn't have taken this seriously if it was a bunch of BS, 
you know? And since then, literally, uh, we've gone about building this, this whole new encryption system, every partner, every company that we've been working with, and we've got some huge mainstream names on the docket. And I, I can't unfortunately say them because there's agreements and stuff, but we've got some major mainstream, you know, um, OEM contracts. Uh, we've got some, you know, huge huge partners that have come to the table, groups like Sarsen Funds sent over a group of mathematicians because they wanted to like research this for their investors. Their mathematicians were like, oh my God, this is absolutely the next big thing. And and I can't believe that we've still been going along with this idea that our current encryption is going to keep lasting into the new world because everybody already knows that quantum computers are going to screw prime-based encryption and RSA. Like everybody knows that. And it's, and it's going to screw up things like elliptical curve and stuff like that too. So we built a modified elliptical curve, ECDH. We built a, a new random number generation system and all of it uses irrational numbers. And, and frankly, it's just, it's just better. It's smarter. It's more uncrackable. And with the new um, one-time pad, it's literally the first quantum proof encryption that's going to go out and be available widely on the market. Wow. That's fantastic. So yeah. how do people go? Yeah. Do they go to that uh, crown Sterling to find out more then about this? That's right. Yeah. You can go to CrownSterling.io yeah. and there's information there. Yeah. Um, if you, if you register for the portal and, and sign on, uh, there's an NDA on there, but you, if you sign that and you go in, there's white papers that, you know, unpack all of the, the math and the encryption and the way it works. Uh, and we've seen a few, uh, <clears throat> let's just say probably not good parties that have been coming in trying to kind of like try to find something wrong or trying to find a way to poke at us, but we haven't seen anything published yet because the math speaks for itself. And these guys went so far as to create fake GitHub accounts. They created a fake Twitter account. They they did everything they could to try to basically debase and disenfranchise, you know, and say, like, these guys are scam artists. This is all BS. But I promise you, man, once, once people actually understand the new math and they understand the work that we've been doing, um, it's going to be huge. And the token that's coming out right now to sell this new encryption, it's going to be absolutely massive. So it's a pretty exciting time for us. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, we'll look forward to that before we let you go. I mean, it's flown by. You've, I love the way you describe things. It just really makes it easy for me to understand. Um, you just put it, put it Thanks, right man. down to, to our level. Um, can we talk about the pyramid uh, news before you go? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I just, uh, I just had uh, mentioned briefly that um, some, some new papers have shown up from Isaac Newton, where he was actually uh, researching and studying uh, different things like the proportions and dynamics and different occult ideas encrypted and hidden into the pyramids. Um, and if you haven't seen the work of Alan Green, he's also absolutely amazing, great performer, would be a great guy to have on the show. Um, Alan Green has spent his life fundamentally proving that William Shakespeare is not just uh, some random guy, that it's actually a team of guys who are um, high-level Rosicrucians who literally were occultists encrypting sacred knowledge 
into the, the work of Shakespeare. And these guys were so good that into Shakespeare's sonnets, the cover of the sonnets, just on the front with a couple lines and a few dots, they encoded a whole series of mathematical constants, even some that we don't even, we didn't even know existed at the time. And, and that the entire structure also points to the exact positioning of the pyramid in Giza, where it is longitude and latitude. And the entire structure of the sonnets is literally built like the stones of the pyramid, forming the structure of the pyramid and all its sides, its angles, its massively encrypted work. And, and the level of encryption is just absolutely brilliant. And, and so there's, there's a lot more than meets the eye to the great pyramid and the great, you know, occultists of the ages, including, uh, Isaac Newton, who's thought of as a physicist, but the guy was really an alchemist, um, <laughs> have, have done huge amounts of work to share, uh, and store, you know, some of this sacred information over the, over the centuries. When was he, uh, when was he around again? Was it the 16 or 1700s? I can't remember. Exactly. Yeah. Newton is 1620. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, like so that. a little bit yeah. after, a little bit after like John D and those guys, uh, that Alan Green talks about. And bacon, yeah, 1643 uh, was yeah. his was oh. when he was born. So oh, yeah, 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 a little a yeah, little yeah. after D right. and D and the team, uh, yeah. Edward yeah. Devere, uh, Edward Kelly, yeah. um, uh, Francis Bacon would have yeah. taken up the torch after John D yeah. and uh, and Edward Devere did. Um, but yeah, Alan Green's work is just absolutely mind blowing and. Uh, you know, he's, he's proven that every mathematical constant known to man is encrypted in the great pyramid. And that is just unbelievably amazing. Yeah. It blows me away. We had Alan on a couple of times, uh, once a few, quite a few years ago. And then again, 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 a little bit more recent when he had more information about that sonnet and all that. And we did a visual mm. sort of more of a visual presentation and it blows me away nice. that he's connected with all, with all you guys do it, that, yeah. that, you, you, know that you share it? each other's work. It's just fantastic. I was just texting with Alan like last week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. He's yeah. going to come back on the show. I mean, did that episode Great. 209 we did where we first like started getting into all that Shakespeare stuff was like, Still to this day, one of our most popular episodes. People are, people like are wow. constantly, it's just the way he delivers it too. It's just like a fucking mystery novel. It's just, it's fucking <laughs> I know. fantastic. I was like, I just wanted to go right into that church or museum and bust that shit up and find out for myself. I know, right? <laughs> and we did, then we, did the, we did the video one with them too. I can't remember what number people have to look it up. But uh, where yeah. he was like, he was laying out the cover of the sonnets for us. He had that on the screen mm -hmm. and he was, but it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Wow. And he's just a fucking fantastic guy to chat with too. He's fun. And you've been fantastic. Yeah, too. he is. Yeah. We appreciate you. Thanks, time. Dan. And, uh, and when, when you, when you blow up, don't forget about your buddies over at America. We'll have you back on when all those Thanks, other people guys. are vying for your attention. Don't forget about us. <laughs> Yeah, it's been great. It's been great, man. Thanks a lot for uh, for your time and effort and energy. Yeah, yeah. It's been thank you luck. both so much. I really appreciate it, and and love your work. And thank you guys for for bringing us on and and doing this work of spreading good information to people and uh, lots of hope and good cheer because it is the season, right? And it's time for us to to really connect and and yeah. to focus on what matters. Right on, That's buddy. Right, right on. on. Thanks. Have a good night, Adam. All right. Take yeah. care, guys. Yeah. Have a great evening. Yeah, you, you too. too. Bye.
And that was a chat. Adam Apollo. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, dude, I don't know. I was getting, I was picking up what he was putting down. I don't know if it's the way these Resonance Foundation guys explain stuff, but man, I'm just getting it. You're just, I'm finally, visualizing you're finally it. It's clicking. There. It's finally clicking. It's six six like, years later. No, it's like seven and a half, eight years together. later. Well, we didn't really get into the unified field theory stuff until like year two or three. Though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, is it's scary with this technology stuff because we're on the brink right now. Actually, that was what he wanted to title the. We're on the brink of this of this title. of this you know technocratic takeover, and and some of the stuff that he's talking about is a big component of this. I mean, we're oh, we just got locked down tonight, and we're supposed to stay home and work from home and be on all these platforms. And I mean, the thing I like about it. Because normally that would kind of scare me is, is, you know, what he's talking about. But he explains it in a way that makes it resonate with the way the universe is. Like the, the stuff that, that um, what's his name from Thrive uh, was on talking about? Foster Gamble. Foster Gamble. Because it's a, Thrive explained it too. The way, the way it's in tune and it's kind of mimicking the universe. It's not like forcing it down your throat or yeah, it's not that. It's like the, really decentralized, the decentralized aspect of what he's talking about. And the humanistic aspect of it seems to make sense. It seems to, it seems to take, it takes away that, that technocratic fear that I have right now. At least it tries At to. least f- it tries from, to from that aspect. I mean, you know, then I'll um, go back on Instagram and be. That'll be it. Fucking <laughs> freaking the fuck out. I mean, I'm not even on, I mean, I'm not even on Facebook and Twitter, so I can't even imagine. I'm not Because I, I get. Uh, I just, just have a Facebook page. We have the Facebook page, so it's great. It's just like a fucking wall just a repository. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even... I don't even, dude. Sometimes I go fucking a while without even looking at the. I don't even care anymore. No, I posted a tweet. I was like, you know, just an at doesn't mean much anymore. There's too much. There's too much. There's too. I can't keep up with it. Stop you trying. posted a tweet on I Facebook? Tw- is that what you're saying? No, on Twitter. I put a tweet. Saying, oh, you, you tweeted. So you know, not just, posted a tweet. You actually tweeted. Well, whatever. I posted a tweet. <laughs> the act, this is a tweeting is the act of posting a tweet. That's right. Yeah. So I posted a tweet. Yeah. I just can't, like, you can't. can't and how, how'd it go? Did, did it? Oh, I don't know. I what would you say? What did you say? I just said, I can't keep up. Sorry. That's what you posted? Yeah. Oh, my God. You just posted that you can't keep up? Dude, did you like say Facebook? Did your meme get? Did your Twitter meme get? Uh, did your meme get? It was a little aggressive. Was it that aggressive? <laughs> did it get canceled? Did it get deleted? It did you get like canceled? A, uh, I didn't get. I don't know. I got a check. I couldn't find it. All the other stuff I posted was fine, but it was a little like. We are shadow banned. I mean, we're getting throttled, like you said. I mean, you can pay Facebook to get more followers or Instagram to get more followers so you can see risk- more ads and all that. And- it was a little more risque than the stuff I normally post. It was like... Uh, we don't have to talk about it now. Well, anyway, big thanks to Adam for coming on the show. Big thanks yeah, to you that guys was great. for listening. We need you guys to support the show. Coming up in the end of the year, it's super important. You know, 2020 has been a tough year. Let's go into 2021 with your karma and you're feeling good because you're supporting the Grand America show and you're helping us move in the right direction and all that great stuff. Let's uh, go to grandamerica.ca slash support. If you can, when you can, sign up for a monthly, make a one-time donation. Head over to grandamerica.ca slash swag. You can buy all sorts of stuff over there, mask, shirt, stickers. I mean, just about anything. Leggings, scarves. Tukes. No tukes. No tukes yet. Okay. We're working on it. Okay. <laughs>
One day we'll have to. I don't know what day. I can't believe we're Canadians in Alberta. It's locked down in the winter. We don't have toques. It's not going to be 2020. It might be. Maybe the little luck 2021, we'll get some toques going. Or beanies. Can we put some runes on it? Like, can we have rune toques? Grimerica. What's Grimerica and runes? We should figure that out. Or can can you, do they work like that? I don't fucking know. Okay, I'll figure it anyway, out. Anyway, we love you guys. Support the show. Do all the stuff in the show notes. Be kind to each other. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Somehow I built a rocket ship Out of the stuff dreams are made And popsicle sticks Look at my rocket ship schematics Tell me you can fly to the moon Tell me I'm not a lunatic Silver Storm